Good morning. Today's reading is in the book of Romans, the ninth chapter, starting on the tenth verse. Um, feel, uh, please feel free to follow along in a Bible in the pew or one you brought yourself, or just be blessed by listening. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Father God, thank you that you are in control. Lord, then when the world shows its craziness, that uh, we can rest knowing that uh, you are there and, uh, and you are master over all of this, Lord. Thank you that you have shown compassion to me and, and to, to, to many others by revealing yourself. And uh, Lord, I pray that, um, that we would get to know you better. And Lord, to, to, to understand um, your love much better. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this opportunity to worship you in music, in the reading of your word, and the preaching of the same. Thank you for Pastor Steve. Uh, he loves your word. He loves you, and he loves us. I pray that you would put in his heart and mind what he, you would have him teach us today. And, Lord, that we would have ears to hear and take to heart uh, the lesson that he's going to give. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. Good to, good to see you all this day. It's Lord's Day. Uh, there's a statistic came out, I think I heard about a month ago, and it said that I think around 63, 64% of the people, am I on here? Can you hear me? I'm not on? You can't hear? Am I on, Kenny? Okay. 63, 64% of the people um, were saved, were Christians in this country. I said, that's not true. I mean, if that was true, this country wouldn't be like it is today, right? It wouldn't be. So a lot of people say they're Christians and they're not really Christians. The Bible says, Matthew chapter 7, that broad is the way uh, to destruction and narrow is the way to salvation. So we know that the minority of the people on the country are Christians, whether that's 5% or 20 or 40. We don't know. We understand that. But the thing I want to say to you here is, is when you have a, 
a church. There are some Bible-believing churches where the pastor will preach to the church as if, hey, this is for the unbelievers on a Sunday morning, and oftentimes these are the big mega churches. I don't preach that way. I talk to you like you're Christians, like you're saved, okay? And if there's some unbelievers here, fine. That's fine, but that's how I talk. I want you to know that. I don't mince words. I share the truth from God's word for the believers because you come this Sunday, and my desire is to feed you, to encourage you, to build you up from the word. 1 Corinthians 14 is probably the best chapter you can read through it sometime that talks about what we do here. It says you come to be encouraged, to be edified, to be comforted as Christians. That's 1 Corinthians, I believe, 14, verse 3. We've been talking about how God is sovereign, how he's sovereign over everyone and everything. That means over the weather, this hot weather we're having, over the rulers, over the church, over all creation, over calamities, over every single person and every single atom. And he is sovereign over our salvation. And that only makes sense because if God is sovereign over everything else, then he must be sovereign over salvation, and he is. The Bible tells us that. How would you answer this question? Why were you saved? Would you say, hey, hey, I was smarter than other people, you know? I, I, I understood that, you know, the, the gospel, and so I believed in Jesus Christ to save me. No, that's not it. Wouldn't you rather say, or shouldn't you say, I was saved? I give the credit to Jesus Christ, to God himself. Yes, that is the correct answer. Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. Jonah was saved out of the well because out of the whale because of God, because it was God's will, not because of anything he did. And so, too, you were saved, spiritually speaking, because of God, because it was God's will, not because of any single thing that you did. God is sovereign over our salvation. I want you to turn to Ephesians 1.4. This is uh, many verses on this subject that we'll be looking at today. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Just as he, that is God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. God chose to save us. There are no verses that say that God chose to save us because he saw that we would choose him first. None like that. That in eternity past, he saw that, hey, we wanted to get saved and so he saved us. That's not how salvation works. Not because he sees that we had some desire way back in the eternity past. That's not salvation is of the Lord, and the reason salvation is of the Lord, one reason anyway, is that no person can do anything to save himself. No person can do that. I assume that you've all been at a funeral, and maybe at a funeral where there was a casket of the dead body, and there was an open viewing, open casket, you saw the person. Have you ever seen a person, a dead person, get up out of that casket and start walking around? Of course not. Of course not. That made all the papers in the world that does not happen, okay? That does not happen like that. That's because the person is dead. He doesn't have the ability. He doesn't have the will. He doesn't have the power. He can't talk. He can't walk. He can't do anything. And so, too, what we're saying is a person then, spiritually speaking, before they're saved, if they get saved, is spiritually dead. That's what we want what we need to understand. Ephesians 18.4 says, the, de- the soul that sins will die. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The Bible makes it very clear. 
that if a person is a sinner, he is one then who is spiritually dead. And all these verses are talking about that. Everyone who sins is spiritually dead, and everyone sins, and so everyone is spiritually dead. That's it, very, very simply. And I wouldn't doubt that all of you know people who are spiritually dead. It could have been a family member. It could be a family member now. It could be somebody you know at work or some neighbor person. And they're spiritually dead. That doesn't mean they're not physically alive. You see them. They talk. They do things. They go to a job. They make money. They, you know, go out to eat, whatever. But they're spiritually dead. They do not have any spiritually ability in them to do any good thing on their own. They don't. Just like a physical person who's physically dead can't do anything. So to a person who's physically dead can't do one single thing, not at all. That is, God then must be the one who gives a person both the desire and the ability to get saved. That's what we're saying, the desire and the ability. The ability can be broken down into two parts, the repentance Repenting to God, telling God you're sorry that you're a sinner, and secondly, the faith, trusting in Christ himself to save you. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but here's the verse. It is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God himself is the one that's got to give you the will, that is the willingness, the desire to get saved, and also the work, that is the ability to get saved. Both things. It's God who does it. Some people say, well, you know, I, I had a little bit of faith, and so I got saved. Not how it works. That is not it. God gives a person both the will and the work to get saved, and it's for his good pleasure. Always remember that. This whole thing we're talking about, ultimately, we sang that last song, for the glory of God, Psalm 57. Ultimately, then, is for the glory of God, the maximum, his maximum glory. That's what we're saying. Luke 7, you know the story of this dead man. Jesus going along, and there's this woman. She had one son. He had died. He was there. You could see him. The, the casket wasn't called that. It was something called a beer. It was open. And he goes up to him, and you know the story. There's Jesus, by the power of God, raises this person physically from the dead. And so, too, as people, we are spiritually dead. God must raise us from the dead. That's what he must do. Ephesians 2, 5, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with he, which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So because you were dead, so we have this contrast. You were dead. You couldn't do anything to save yourself, but God made you alive. You were dead. By God's grace, you are alive. That's it. And God is the one who had to make you alive if you're saved in Christ today. And it was by the work of Christ in the cross and by the power of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in your heart that you are saved. God saves you by Christ and through the Spirit. That's what happened. This verse in Colossians 2.13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Again, God made you alive. There's nothing at all that ever says that you did anything to save yourself. Ephesians 1.4 Back to Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in him. Again, God chose us. And what's it say he chose us for? To make us holy. Again, never does it say that we chose him. Never. Long before this world was ever made, God chose us. He decided way back, in eternity past, who'd be saved, who'd be holy, and who'd be going to heaven. That is, God knew the composition, the makeup of the church way back 
before this world is ever made. That's it. He knows exactly who's going to get saved all the way up until the time he comes back in the clouds and raptures the believers from this earth. Second Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. So we see that God chooses us and his purpose, again, to choose us is to save us and is to sanctify us and is to set us apart for himself. That's what he does. And again, it's by the spirit working in our hearts, the spirit that gives us his faith faith in Christ, faith in the truth of the gospel that then saves us. Titus 3.5 says it this way, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy and by the, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So we talk about salvation. God's in charge. God decides. God chooses. Christ dies on the cross to pay for our sins. And the Holy Spirit then takes that, applies that work of Christ to our hearts and saves us. That's what he does. 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. One reason that Paul shared the gospel and endured, you read the New Testament, his writings, particularly 1 Corinthians 11, this litany of all the things that Paul went through, all the sufferings. One reason that he shared the gospel and endured all these heavy-duty trials that he went through during the course of his life was because he knew there'd be people who'd get saved. He knew that. People whom God had chosen to get saved. That is, Paul shared the gospel because he knew God would save those whom he had chosen. And we should have the same attitude. We go out there talking to people, we should believe that God is working in the hearts of those people that he wants to save. And sometimes you might know somebody and you share the gospel, you share the gospel. And, and maybe they will get saved, but maybe they won't because it's like they're not open. I mean, the, the classic story for me, and I think I've told this in the past, back in 1973, I believe it was, I was home from college. I was talking to my brother Jeff. He was 16 at the time. And I found this out just, I think, a few years ago. That that day before, that night before I talked to him, he was out doing drugs and he was partying and drinking. I didn't know he was that kind of person. But, you know, he was a good student, but he still find time, found time to do his marijuana and do his drinking. And so I was sharing, and, and he got saved like a fig falling off a tree. In fact, we just, we just picked our first fig, fig last night uh, off our fig tree. But, and it, was just, it just comes right off. The point is, he got saved. Well, I've got six siblings, okay? This one is Jeffy got saved. And throughout the years, I, I've shared with most of the rest of them in different times, different ways. I've prayed a lot, and I've, I've tried to love them and different things. In fact, I just sent all six of my siblings, you know, that heaven book that we got there, back there with Billy Graham. I sent it to them about three or four months ago, every one of them, just a little three-by-five card. Hey, thought you might like to see this book that talks about the future. And, of course, it shares the Gospels, as Billy Graham shares there. And so I'm doing what I can, but I have to admit, it wasn't until the 90s when I really understand this truth of God's sovereignty. I, I, I was sort of mentally beating myself up. Man, why doesn't this one get saved? Why doesn't this sister, why doesn't this brother get saved? What's wrong? Am I doing something wrong? And I was blaming myself for their not getting saved. In fact, I know a person, I've heard a person say this publicly once, and he was saying, you know, I, I, I know, you know, I'm concerned there'll be some people who don't get saved because I didn't share the gospel. It was my fault that it gets saved. And that's just wrong. It's wrong. And so I'm not saying, I'm not saying, okay, just trust God and sit back in your, you know, easy chair there. I'm not saying that. Do the work. Share the gospel. But you have to know, believe. Bottom line, God saves people. 
and don't beat yourself up. Pray for them, love them, share the gospel, be an example, but trust God. He is in charge. So, so important. Romans 8, 28, 30, turn there. Some key verses on this topic here. Romans 8, 28 to 30. You know these verses, I believe, but we need to see them in this context here as we talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. Verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. To those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's look at these few verses. This, we understand here that God chose us. And this tells us, too, then, that God planned out ahead of time to save us. The word foreknew just doesn't mean that God knew who people would be ahead of time. That as he knew all the names of all the people on this earth, that isn't what it means. I mean, that thought is there, but that's not the main thought when you think about this word foreknow. It means he loved us ahead of time. He had his heart set on us way back in eternity past. John MacArthur said it this way, In Scripture, to know often carries the idea of special intimacy and is frequently used of a relationship. I was looking at this booklet, my friend. I told you about Mike Stolmar back in Iowa. He wrote this years ago. And uh, he said this, Careful examination of the verses in which the word foreknow occurs shows us that whenever it is used in connection with people, foreknow means an intimate knowledge and communion with a person rather than mere knowledge of the facts about that individual. In this sense, foreknowledge is really an equivalent of to love before. Frequently in both the Old and New Testaments, know means to regard with favor. It denotes not merely knowing someone or something, but having affection for the object in view. This meaning of love or having an intimate fellowship with is required, for example, in Jesus' word on the Sermon on the Mount. On the last day, he will tell men who have claimed his power to depart from him because he never knew them. He's talking to people. He knew who they were. He knew their names. He could see them, but he never knew them, never had this intimate knowledge, this intimate relationship, this love for them. That's what he's, what he's saying here. So it's important to understand this word foreknow. First John 4.19 says, We love because God first loved us. When did that love start? <laughs> it started not when we got saved. That's when we could experience his love for us started way back in eternity past. That's that foreknow word. That's what it means, Okay. I mean, a simple example, maybe not perfect, but Marcia and I, we were married on September 13th, 1986. We were engaged on May 8th, 1986. But we sort of liked each other, if I can say it that way, before we got engaged, okay? Right? Makes sense? For Marcia, I would suggest she might disagree. I don't know. I'm just telling you what I think here. It was back the first time we met, which was November 20th, 1984. For me, it might have been, I will say this, maybe a month later, we were, a number of us singles going together to a Messiah concert, okay? And she was sitting next to me in this row, all these singles in their church, and she was next to me, so I started thinking. So anyway, the point is, is if you get married, if you get engaged, you love somebody before that happens, right? It's the same thing here, when we're talking about God's love that started way back in eternity past, that's the point. Now we continue, 1 Peter 1, 1, 2, 1 and 2, to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Do you see what it says there? You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. See this, God chooses 
those whom he foreknew, those whom he loved ahead of time. So it's like the, the first part of this whole process of salvation is God loved us and he chose us. That's what it says here. He loved us ahead of time. He set his heart on us, on, on, had his heart set on us ahead of time. God chose those who would get saved and it was because he loved them and he loved them since eternity past. Now, Ephesians 1.5 carries this thought and continues to the next main point. We're here looking at Romans 8. It says, to those who are, it says, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In love. Again, that word love there. And this is word predestined. We're going to look at predestined now. It means to mark out, to map out, to determine ahead of time. So God determined way back in the eternity past who would be saved. That's what he do. Every person who'd believe him, he determined their, their, their life. He marked out their life. Predestined is similar to the word chosen, meaning that God then and it substantiates the truth of, of, of being chosen and that God picks us out ahead of time to save us. That's what he does. But God wasn't influenced by anyone. When it says this, God chose, God predestined, he wasn't influenced by anyone. It was his decision, his, his will, his choice. It's, there, there's a phrase you might have heard called unconditional election, and that means there's nothing we can do. There's no conditions on our part by which we can be saved. Nothing. It's all up to God. It's all up to God. And that's that which started way again back in eternity past. That's what happened. Predestined also conveys the idea that God plans out all the details of your life and every single detail of your life. If you think about this, we all know that we're descendants of Adam and Eve. Let's, let's just go back to Noah because, you know, everybody died, and so Noah's there, and he had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and we're all descendants of Shem, Ham, Japheth. Okay, we know that. But I was sort of doing rough calculations, thinking if a person's born about every 30 years or so, you know, I mean, if you have a parents and the grandparents, you know, you know what I'm saying, the, it's about every 30 years is a generation. And so if you take 30 into 6,000, let's say in 6,000 is the age of the earth. I know that's a young age theory, and I tend to ascribe to that. 30 into 6,000 is 200. Okay, so what that means in general, again, I'm really roughing this out. You've got parents, you've got grandparents, you've got great-grandparents, you got great great grandparents, you got great great grandparents, and you keep going 200 times. Okay? That's the point. That's in general, whether it's 150, 180, or 220, I don't know. But that's the idea. So God planned it all out from at, from Noah. You know, which one of those? Clear down to your parents. He planned everyone. And here's the kicker listen to this. You know, you know a little about genetics? You know that you're a unique person. Nobody's ever like you in the whole world. You got a unique fingerprints, you got unique genes, unique chromosomes, all unique. God had all that planned out way back in the turn of the past and all the genetics from Noah to you. All figured out the combinations. You know that. You get, if you have siblings, you say, man, they don't look like me. Maybe a little bit, but not completely. They're different because of their genes, and God had it all figured out. It's incredible. That's part of this predestination. That's part of this determining the details of your life. So God planned out what needed to happen in your life before you were saved. That is, God chose to save you and then planned out your entire life so that it would happen. Just a, just a quick glimpse at my life. I'll just go through a few things here. Back in, in 61, I was in Las Vegas. 
There's seven of us children, my mom and my dad. The doctor told my dad, he says, get your affairs in order. He had nephritis, he had kidney failure, there was no dialysis, there was no transplants, at least not so. It, I mean, they were trying these things, but it wasn't perfected, none of that. So he says, get your affairs in order. So we moved back to Iowa to be back with the family. That's where we're from. Went to Northwest Iowa there. He went to Vets. He had been in World War II. Um, Vets Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, to die, basically. That's what happened. We all scattered his kids to the different relatives in that part of the state to stay there for the summer. He passed away August 23rd in 1961. We moved in this big Iowa, white Iowa farmhouse. No, no heat upstairs, you know, and a beautiful grove. It was a great place to play. We lived there four, four years, and my mom said she needed, wanted to become a nurse to start supporting the family more. The youngest is now school age, so moved south to Carroll, Iowa, for 40 miles. I was in school there, seventh, eighth, then high school for four years. And then after that, I went to college 65 miles east of there to Ames. It was in October. I'm summing this up here. October that year that Aaron Keller sat me down, shared the gospel, and sat me down. He called me up and said, hey, I got this thing I want to share with you. Can I come over to your dorm room? I said, sure. So I was interested. And I, he came over. I didn't get saved then, okay, but that was sort of the beginning of this real active part, God working. is then in December that same year, December 17th. I remember it clearly. Sherman Ober, we were in the union there at Iowa State. He shared the gospel again. And then it was January, and guess who came to town? Josh McDowell. This is back in 1972, January. You've all heard of Josh McDowell, and he was doing a study on Romans. And I was sitting there, not saved yet, but God was working. It's about that same time, maybe a week later, that that, uh, a church from Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, came. And the church that I was with, that BACC was with, all came as a great commission. That's when it really started. Well, not started, but part of this starting back in Ames. And so all this is going on. I was being affected by all this, and I'm not going to all the details, but then I probably got saved around February that year. So the point is, God had it all planned out. And so, and it's like, it's like my father died, and so then I moved to Iowa. Okay, not that it couldn't have happened some other way, but that was part of his plan and, and my salvation. I think back, and, and you think about your life, you can think of the same kind of thing, not the same kind, but similar things, how God was sovereign, God was working, God was ordaining things in your life to bring you to the point of salvation. Turn to Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That's God's sovereignty. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So God is sovereign over the time we live and over the place we live, that indeed is what God does. Let's go back to Romans 8. It says in verse 30, These whom he predestined, he also called. Let's talk about this word, called. What happens after we are predestined, we are called. And where is this word predestined? Is that which takes place in eternity past. Called is that which takes place in this lifetime right here. And what called means is that God is actively working in our hearts, leading us to that point of salvation. What I just described a little bit with, with you here. He's working in our, during our lifetime. That's what's happening. God, through his Holy Spirit, then he convicts us of our sins. He, he tells us about the need for Christ and our need for forgiveness. That's what's happening. Through the Holy Spirit, then, and through God's word, and who knows what else he did in your life, through other Christians, maybe through different trials or circumstances, and in your conscience, 
God was drawing you. God was leading you to himself. That's, that's what was going on. John 6, 65 is pretty, pretty black and white. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. No one. It's God's decision. God granted it. That's what happened. Again, I know for me, God was working in my heart. I think specifically, I gave you a whole list of things that happened. But I know that last year particularly, I could tell my heart was becoming more interested in spiritual things. So when Aaron called me on the phone mid-October of 71, I wanted to talk to him. I was interested. I was interested in spiritual things. And if you're saved, then God called you, and God was actively working in your heart leading up to that point of salvation, right? Don't you all have a story like that? Something like that. Something like that, God was calling you. Then we read in Romans 8, you're glorified. So, here's the order. You're called, well, predestined, justified, called, predestined, called, justified. Now, it says glorified. doesn't use the word sanctified, right? We think of our Christian life, I was justified, you know, and now I'm being sanctified. And this word sanctified is, is, is the whole truth about how God is helping us to spiritually grow during our life here on this earth from the moment that we got saved until the moment that we physically die or are raptured, God is sanctifying us. And if you know believers in heaven right now, they're not being sanctified. They're between that sanctified and glorified state. That's what's going on, okay? That's what's happening. And if you get saved, when you get saved then, then you're born again and you're justified, you're forgiven, and you're sanctified, and you will be glorified. Now, the sanctification process, we understand, too, then, that God is now sanctifying you. That's what he is doing. And just like God is sovereign over your salvation, he is also sovereign over this sanctification, this spiritual growth process. And that takes us to verse 28 back there. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love him. That's the sanctification. During your life here on earth, God is working all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So you see that. God is sovereign. This whole thing is about God's sovereignty, what God is doing, what God is, is working then. And so we see then what is the purpose. Verse 28. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. At this point in time, your salvation is not complete. People who have died are in heaven. Believers, you know, their salvation is not complete. But you will be glorified. You will become conformed to the image of God's son. And that takes place on the day of Christ when Christ comes back. And when you think about this, it's really powerful. You think about what's happening here. So... People say, well, I had a big part in my salvation. He didn't do anything. He didn't do a thing. God foreknew you. God chose you. God predestined you way back in eternity past. God then called you on this earth when you weren't in the least bit interested. You can say, oh, I was interested. No, you weren't. God called you. God had to spiritually move in your heart. Then he justified you, the work of God. Now he's sanctifying you, and then he'll glorify you. That's amazing. You become a Christian, you're justified, and you're now sanctified. And, and at that point, this is amazing, you were rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's Son. Did you do that? 
Did you somehow, in your own working, transfer yourself from the domain of the devil of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son? Did you have any bit in that? We are talking about spiritual truths and realities as justification and sanctification and predestination. It's way, way above us. Way, 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 way beyond us. I mean, it's amazing what God has done here. And so we understand this then. That you're sanctified. You will be glorified. That's what's going to happen. And this verse 29 then, so we see this. Verse 28 says, according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew. What is his purpose? Because, and we say this, and a lot of times you'll, you'll see this. You'll be going along, and, and, and I, I will see this a lot of times. Hey, God was sovereign. God was working out the details of my life today. And certain things work out. Wow, that was cool how God worked that out. Just certain things, a certain timing, a certain way. You all have stories about that. And you see that really on a somewhat regular basis if you're looking for it, how God is sovereign, God is working. But what's it say here according to his purpose? What's the main reason that God is now working in your life sovereignly so? Verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he conformed to become, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. It's so that you then are glorified, okay? Justified, sanctified, glorified. That's then what God is doing. And so we sum this up, this Romans 8, 28 to 30. We sum it up in that God, God foreknew you, God predestined you, and God called you, and God justified you, and God is now sanctifying you. That's Romans 8, 28. It doesn't say the word, but that's what it means. And in the future, then, he will glorify you. That's what is going to happen. And so this tells us that what God planned way back in the eternity past is going to come about. It's going to come out. It's going to happen. What God started in you will be completed. That great verse, Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, I'm confident this very thing that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Who's doing the work? God began it. He's now carrying on to completion to the day of Christ, the day of Christ. Now the phrase relates to Christ comes back. That's when you're glorified. That's when your salvation is complete. Okay, so you think about this is amazing. We think about this big picture. Right now, you're here on this earth. You're here in this room. This church you're building here, and you're being sanctified. There come a time when either you physically die or raptured. One of the two will happen to all of you here. One of the two. Okay, and I don't know. Maybe none of us will be raptured. I don't know. I don't know the timing. But but there'll come that time then when you'll be glorified, and that's an amazing thing. And so at that point in time, you can look back and say, "Wow, it's all done." Your salvation, that is. That aspect of your salvation. You were, you were you know, foreknew, foreknown, and you were chosen, and you were predestined, and you were called, and you were justified, and you were sanctified, and you are glorified. That part's all done. That's going to happen, you see. You look back, wow. And that's when we're in the millennial kingdom age, working with Christ, reigning over this world. So this big picture, this is really encouraging. But again, to see the truth of God's sovereignty with every, every aspect of your salvation is important to understand. I want you to turn to Romans we are in Romans here. Should be. If you've got your Bible in front of you. So if you're saved, then God will make sure that you're saved. He'll make sure that you make it all the way to heaven and be glorified. And no one can stop or thwart what God's going to do. Romans 8, 31, 39 comes after Romans 8, 28 to 30. And really talks more about God's sovereignty. That is what God 
is going to finish. I just want to read these verses, but they're really an exclamation point on these truths in Romans 8, 20 to 30. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him, him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's it. Once you're saved, you're always saved. And a lot of verses. I'm not going to go through them, but you understand. It's powerful. You need, to, you need to read that every once in a while just to remind yourself of that. I want to share some more verses about how salvation is the work of God, not a work of man. Turn to... Um, Ephesians chapter 2, 3 to 9. Ephesians 2, verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Very clear. God is sovereign. It says you're saved by grace. It's not by what you do, not by your works, it's not by your efforts, none of that at all, not what you can do at all. It's not what you deserve. You deserve God's wrath, as it said there in verse 4. You deserve the wrath of God. Verse 3. Deserve to be punished for your sins, but God being rich in mercy. So Christ did all the work that needed to be done to save you. You understand that. He died, paid for your sins, and rose again. A great verse, John 19.30. What did Jesus say right before he died? It is finished. All the work to pay for your sins is done completely done, totally done, forever done, finally done, the work of Christ to save you. First Peter chapter 3, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And so that you're saved by grace means that salvation is God's gift to you, and it didn't cost you one thing. Even your faith. I said before, we'll say it again, your faith is a gift from God to you. God then is the one who gives you the faith, enables you then to believe. God is the one that does this. Some people think there's just a little bit of faith I got. God gives every person a little bit of faith. Think that. There's a word for that. You know, they say a little bit of faith you can believe. That's not true. God is the one who gives us the faith. That's what he's saying there. And verse 9 says you cannot boast. You can never say, look at what I've done. It's all by God, all by his grace, nothing that we do at all. You might jot these verses down that say the similar thing. 1 Corinthians 1, 29 to 31. Read them sometime. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 29, 31. Many here are some other verses. 
about how your salvation is completely from God. Acts 13, 48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So God appoints you, he chooses you, and he then gives you the faith to believe. Another story here, there's Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia, and Jesus was talking to her. He said, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. It was God then who enabled Lydia to understand the gospel and to believe and have faith. That's what happened. John 1, 12 and 13, I'll read these verses. It says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It says three things here, that it doesn't happen this way. Salvation does not happen. First, it's not by blood. That is, it's not because of the family you were born in. That's not it. It's not because of your race or your ethnicity. It's not by blood. It's not by physical makeup. It's not by your flesh. That is, not by your own efforts. It's not by your works. It's not by the will of man. I mean, it's not what somebody else can do for you. Somebody else can pray for you. Or somebody else baptized you, or whatever somebody did. There's um, the religion I was raised in, the Catholic faith, believes that, that uh, it can be the will of man. I want to read a story here. Not a story. This is part of their Bible. Listen carefully. I'm going to go quickly. Catholics believe that people go to purgatory after they die. Some do. They say Mary is perfect, went right to heaven, assumed to heaven. That's not true. They say that people go to purgatory and that you can pray a person out of purgatory, okay? That's what I was taught. This is what the book of Maccabees says. This is one of the main reasons they believe that. Listen to this. By the following day, it was urgent that they gather up the bodies of the men who had been killed in battle and bury them in their family tombs. But on each of the dead, hidden under their clothes, they found small images of the gods worshipped in Jomnia, which the law forbids Jews to wear. Everyone then knew why these men had been killed. So they praised the ways of the Lord, the just God, who reveals what is hidden, and they begged him that this sin might be completely blotted out. Again, these are dead people, okay? Then Judas, Judas Maccabees, that great man, urged the people to keep away from sin because they had seen for themselves what had happened to those men who had sinned. He also took up a collection from all his men, totaling about four pounds of silver, and sent it to Jerusalem to provide for a sin offering. Jesus did this noble thing because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. If he had not believed that the dead would be raised, it would have been foolish and useless to pray for them. Praying for them. Offering sin offerings. That's what it says. In his firm and devout conviction that all of God's faithful people would receive a wonderful reward, Judas made provision for a sin offering to set free from their sin those who had died. You can see why that's not the true word of God. Because it doesn't tell us the truth. And I was raised in the Catholic Church. If you've been in the Catholic Church, you'll see in the back part there are these little candles, and some are lit and some aren't lit, you know. And, and that's where you can pray for the dead. You, you put some little, there's a little coin box or for bills or whatever. You put the money in the box, and then you take a little match, and you light the candle, and then you pray for the person. That's the sin offering. That's the prayer. That's what they believe, you see. That's praying for the dead. That's what Maccabees said here. It's wrong. It's not true. But the point is, I'm saying, the big picture, it's not the will of man. There's all kinds of people believe it's the what I can do to get saved. It is not the will of the flesh. It's not by blood. It's not by the will of man. It's the will of God because God wanted to save you, planned to save you, and then saved you. I like how Psalm 49 says this, first about the will of man, verses seven to, verse 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. You can't do one thing to save 
save anybody. Then he goes on to say, verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the, from, from the power of Sheol, for God will receive me. God is the one, not the will of man, it's the will of God. Matthew eleven twenty seven. we continue. No one knows the Father, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The way to know the Father, the way to be saved then, is the Son has to reveal God to you. An unsaved person does not want to be saved. He does not want to be. I mean, one that's not being called by God. He doesn't want to be saved. He has no inclination to want to be saved. You all know people like this. You talk to them, and they want to do their own thing. They don't care about God. They want to sin. So God then, he's the one that's got to intervene, and that's what we're talking about. It's an intervention. People get saved. God is intervening. He is invading a person's life, and he does this in a very kind and gentle way. When I was being led to the Lord that last year for a save. It wasn't like he was pushing me. He didn't have a hammer over my head. I didn't go kicking and screaming to believe in the Lord. It wasn't that way at all. God was changing my heart. I wanted to. I wanted to talk to Aaron about what he had to say about the God. I wanted to hear what he had to say. I was interested those next few months before I got saved. I was very interested. That was the work of God. It wasn't me. That's not what was happening. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father, the Father who sent me draws him. Man then is utterly helpless, completely unable to respond to Jesus, respond to God, to come to him. God must draw him. God must spiritually move in the heart of a person then before he gets saved. And that's what God does. And all this drawing then is powerful. It's a powerful. When a man comes to God... No man can resist him. But again, as I said, God works in such a way that we want to get saved. We're interested. We're convicted. I want forgiveness. I want new life. I'm tired of my life, my sin, the problems, everything. Else. I'm tired of messing things up. Now, we've talked about this. I'm going to say this briefly. What about man? Yes, he is responsible for his own sin. If a man doesn't believe, he will perish. That's what John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Of course, the idea is simply whoever does not believe will perish. And perish is a nice word for hell. Okay, I'll perish. I heard somebody on TV, some news say perish the other day. It's a nice word for hell, but that's what it means. It means everlasting destruction. That's the idea. person who doesn't believe then. And again, we can't understand how man's responsible to believe, and yet God is sovereign over our salvation. We cannot understand it. I'd encourage you to read, Jeff read part of it, I'd read Romans 9, okay? Particularly 10 through 24, 25, but to read the whole thing. That helps. That's one of the best chapters on God is one who is sovereign. In fact, at one part it says, who are you, a man, to talk back to God? You don't like what I say? Who are you anyway? I'm in charge. That's what he's saying. Don't talk back to me. Shouldn't do that. Don't think you know more than me. God knows what he's doing. God is in charge of everything. And yes, that verse, as I said before, Proverbs 20, 24, steps of man are ordained by the Lord. How then can anyone understand his way? You can't understand your way. You can't understand the way of God's working with an unbeliever. You just can't. But God, indeed, he is in charge. These verses I've shared before about how God keeps you safe, 1 Corinthians 1, 8, he will keep you strong to the end so that you be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To God be the glory. Great verses. If you're saved, if you're truly saved, God will keep you saved. That's what will happen. So God's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over your salvation. And this then should cause us to be ones who, who worship God. It's a wonderful, it's an encouraging, it's a truly humbling and God-exalting thing that God saves us. It really is. And that's the main thing, is, is to God be the glory. Great things he has done. So, loved, so, so great he loved us. He gave us his son. That, that's his glory. We should give it to him. And yet, the result of knowing that God is sovereign in our lives, practically day to day, and in this whole life, and over our salvation, gives us a lot of peace. Gives a lot of hope. A lot of faith. I know people that understand this truth. Um, sometimes people can understand it right away, but for a lot of people it's a process. How can God be sovereign and yet we're responsible? And so I understand that. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this. I don't know. But you look at the verses, you cannot, you cannot deny the truth, this truth. And it gives God so much glory. And I love it, the fact that he is in charge and he can do what he wants. And I love the fact that he is sovereign over my salvation. We should all think that way as well, thanking him for that. One final concluding verses. I'll read this. Jude 24 and 5, you know it. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ the Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time looking at what I'm convinced is true, a truth that many Christians would disagree with and debate and fight over. But Lord, that doesn't bother me. I just trust what you say here, and I thank you for what you say, and thank you that it's true because I'm so glad that you're sovereign over my life and over everyone's life and over everything in this world and over, the, over all that is good and all that is evil and the evil people we see and, and what are they doing and it can get us upset but we know that you're in charge. As it says even in Psalm 2, they're coming against you, these rulers and people, but you sit back and laugh. You laugh in a way because you know they're just foolish Thank you, God, that even those verses there, we know that, Lord Jesus, you will come, that we here at this point, we are in this stage of our salvation, being sanctified, and someday then we'll be in heaven, and someday we'll be glorified, and that may happen at the same day. If we're raptured, it will be. If not, then there's another process. But thank you that it will happen, and we will be then glorified and with you forever and ever and ever. Just it's such a wonderful truth, this salvation that you've given us. And I pray that more and more you'd help us to understand it. And even though today I've gone over a lot of these truths, being chosen and predestined and called and, and, and sanctified, all these things, Lord, foreknown quickly, it's amazing to see this big picture and understand it. Thank you again, Father, for your great love for us. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for those who couldn't be here, those who are listening online those who might be not feeling well. Lord, we do pray for Carol. Her surgery is two weeks from tomorrow. Pray for her and others, Lord, who might be ill. Thank you again, Lord, for your great love for us. Help us in our trials. Help us in our difficulties. We all have struggles through the week. There's no doubt about that. But help us to be ones who look to you and are strengthened and continue on in persevering. And knowing these verses about how you help us to persevere, how you keep us going, 
this 1 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9, these verses in Jude 24 and 5, and the verse then in 2 Timothy 4, 18. So encouraging that you give us the strength to keep going. Thank you for that. Thank you for your love for us. We do love you. Thank you for everyone here again today. Pray all this then in Jesus' name.